Welcome to the Healthcare IT Today interview series. We feel lucky to be able to talk to so many smart, passionate, and knowledgeable people in healthcare. Now, we're taking our favorite interviews and sharing them with you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy perspectives on the world of health IT. Hi, everyone. I'm John Lynn, the founder and chief editor at Healthcare IT Today. Excited to be talking about probably the most popular topic in healthcare right now, and that's telehealth. And our guest today is Dr. Mia Finkelstein. She's senior director, senior medical director at Amwell. Welcome, Dr. Mia. Thanks for having me, John. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so it's great to have you here. I mean, I, I can only imagine what you've been through this last year. But before we can dive into that, tell us a little bit about yourself and Amwell. Oh, sure. Happy to. Um, so I'm a family physician, board certified. And I started working with Amwell almost eight years ago, actually. Wow. Um, I remember being in my brick and mortar practice, which is a private practice in a small rural area in Southern Maryland. And um was just hearing about telemedicine. And currently in my practice, I was also noticing that a lot of my geriatric patients mm-hmm. were having trouble getting in for visits. And part of the reason was because we were so busy in our practice. Also, there weren't as many same day available appointments, et cetera, whatever the reason may be, but they were unfortunately going to the emergency department a little bit too much or to the local urgent care. And when I would hear about this, I would be, hmm, you know, you know, calling family members actually saying, hey, you know, why did your mom end up in the ER? I just got notice, notice. And she said, well, you know, we couldn't get in to see you. And mm-hmm. I had the thought then, wow, these, this is a great group to use telemedicine because quite often they're relying on family members to bring them into the office. So their appointments might be later in the day or first thing in the morning. And, you know, could I leverage telemedicine somehow to reach out to this group that was using emergency services really unnecessarily? You know, often it was for just a touch point, you know, let me check, is this a side effect of the medication that Dr. Mia gave me or something like that, that could easily be answered through a video-based visit. And at the time, my employer wasn't interested in it, you know, too new, a little scared to do that, even though I raised my hand and said, I'll be the guinea pig. So I went ahead and reached out to Mwell and said, you know, hey, I'm interested. And I think I overlapped for maybe three or four months before I realized, wow, I want to be part of this ride. And I <laughs> left my brick and mortar entirely. And um, I'm so glad I did because, you know, at the time, only 13 states were allowing telemedicine visits then. So I got to see not only from the state board level how telemedicine was allowed to, you know, um, be used in states safely, but also just in general, the volume of how patients were slowly, you know, from the days where I might have one or two visits to now having, uh, you know, whatever, four or five times that, you know, in an hour. So it really is just to see the adoption has been incredible. And, um, and also just to get that feedback from patients about how, amazing and effortless and convenient and easy to use. And, and thank you for being there, Dr. Mia. Can I come back and see you? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it, it really has been very rewarding too. So from a, a career perspective, it's been a, a great um, jump. Yeah. And before we dive into COVID, I mean, we want to hear how it's impacted, but I mean, it's probably amazing how far boards have come, right? I mean, I, 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 I've talked to a number of telehealth people and it's amazing how many were so anti telehealth for a long time. So I'm sure you experienced that. Can you give us a feel like how far have we come since the eight years ago when you started this journey? Wow. 
Yeah, I mean, I have a couple of examples that jump to mind. First of all, just to give perspective, um, doctors have to be licensed in each state. It's not like I can get one doctor license and it goes, you know, so that's something the general public doesn't always understand. Right. Secondly, each state has different rules. And when I first started eight years ago, I really, I think there were two or three states. I have 29 state licenses, just to put it in perspective. And I think there were two or three states that mandated that I take a telemedicine exam. So they even generated questions. This was aside from my already board certification yeah, to take so that yeah. I was, it was to give me a certificate that allowed me to do it. Now, I think those states have done away with that now. You don't need to take a telemedicine certificate. So it was so new, even the, the state boards were afraid. Okay, what's going on? What are we allowing? So they probably sure. wanted to make it a little harder you know, to, to get to do that. Secondly, I had to fly to some states to be interviewed face to face. So I couldn't just renew online, send in my check, that sort of thing. I had to actually fly there and get a face-to-face -face interview. And then um, there were a couple states that really had me sit in front of the board. So a literal group of about you know, a dozen people and answer questions about how did I feel about practicing telemedicine wow. and um, really gave it to me, you know, um, which was scary on one hand, but also very enlightening to see that there were some states like that. And so the last states that allowed telemedicine to occur, I think were Arkansas and Louisiana. And, and they were, you know, definitely two of the hardest states to get approval for telemedicine. in. so um, it was, it was eye-opening to say the least. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, that's a discussion for another day, why we don't have a federal law around it and other things. Uh, someone told me follow the money, which I think is an interesting idea, but <laughs> we'll save that for another yeah. day. So right. let's talk about what what was the telehealth, I mean, I think explosion is the right word that happened. What was it like at Amwell? You know, what, 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 you know any numbers you can share or stories when COVID hit and everyone said, okay, I've got to use telehealth because mm -hmm. that's the only way I'm going to see patients? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely stories. And I can just be, really speak to my own experience, which I think it parallels a lot of the doctors who, you know, have been practicing telemedicine. But, you know, I, I think it was it, like the if you all go back to late February um, and as a physician or even just as a non-physician, you know, listening to the news and knowing something was coming, you know, it was literally working its yeah. way across the, the globe and across the country to the, you know, Northeast or Northwest, I believe first, right. And then coming across the country to these Eastern States, which I tend to have a lot of, um, although New York was probably in the beginning influx, yeah. but nonetheless, the end of February, I'm already busy. You know, it's, it's winter We're we're always, I think universally telemedicine services are busier in the winter months. Yeah. Cause they so, trouble. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, cold flus, you name it. So I'm already into, you know, the December, January flare of, um, of patient volume. And then you see this happening, you know, and you see it because you're watching the news when you're not working or you're talking to friends and you know that this is coming. And then, you know, March comes and really the volume starts to grow. And it was an interesting phenomenon when you look at the patient. Well, first of all, for me individually, to get that volume of patients where I was now signing on early and leaving my shift, I tend to work shifts, leaving my shift late because I knew I was helping out. You know, it's really hard to sign off for the day when you know there are patients who need you. Different than walking out of a brick and mortar because you've seen your queue for the day. But I do urgent care. So if I'm available, people are gonna come in my waiting room, you know? So um, st starting earlier, ending later, and then also experiencing 
my own family dynamic. You know, now my husband is working from home and now my daughter is back in the house working from home too. Thankfully had a job on working from home. So that whole situation changed and we all had to get our, I have my own space anyway in the basement, but they had to get their spaces and, and sort of juggle that as well. But when you look at the patients who are coming, you know, that was, it's really interesting to talk about. And initially there were a lot of worried well. These are people who had no symptoms, but they're like, oh my goodness, doc, I have a lot of questions. Oh, what do I need to look for? Am I at risk? How am I going to get this? You know, all those things we didn't really know in the beginning that, you know, still we don't know everything, but we know a lot more. And then after the worried well, you would start to see patients who may have been exposed or may have some symptom, but they want to get tested. And in the beginning, we couldn't test anyone who wanted it just because they thought they were exposed. If you recall, they had to have symptoms. Um, they had to have certain symptoms for a certain amount of time, a certain fever. They had to have risk factors just to substantiate the fact right. that they might be high risk because testing was, you know, not universal yeah. at that point. So there was a lot to navigate when people came on and, and sometimes they would be upset. You know, uh, what do you mean? I don't need criteria, doctor, you know, just lie for me or whatever <laughs> Yeah, so it was a lot of education and handholding and reassuring patients and also understanding their anxiety. And then, um, you know, as the spring went on and we got closer to summer, testing was becoming a little bit easier to get. People were coming on and, and being able to recommend testing was, was not so big a deal. But now we have other problems that are coming on. So a patient would come on, yeah, I think I might have a, a cold or I was exposed maybe to someone, but really, doctor, I'm having this rash, I need to, you know, it's summer, I think I have poison ivy, or I think I have a UTI, urinary tract infection, and my doctor's office is closed. They have not started seeing patients yet. So that was in our faces. These are patients now who may or may not have had COVID, but they had other issues that they couldn't address in their community. And so they were looking for medical care, or this was also a kind of a frightening one. I need a refill on my blood pressure medication or my heart medication, my cholesterol medication. And my doctor's office is either they're not back yet, or they're not answering me and I need these medicines. So you, we were able to see other problems that were coming in and, um, you know, heartbreaking, but also so glad to be there to help them. Sure. And then in the fall, you know, I think things sort of subdued with our volume. They were still steady, but they were subdued a little bit in the fall. And then once we got into like October, November, December, things were skyrocketing again with um, illness. Closed you know, people, again. Yep. People are sick again and, and that sort of thing. And now, you know, we sort of manage that people have come in and they'll say, oh, I was already tested, but my symptoms are lingering. What can I do for that? Or I was already tested and I need a note explaining all this for work. So that's sort of what we're navigating now, I think, as well as some patients who say, you know, my primary care physician retired, they were close and this sort of forced their hand. I don't have a doctor yet, but I need a refill on my blood pressure medicine. So still seeing, you know, a good bit of those. And now we're seeing people who are, are calling about the vaccine, you know, tell me about the vaccine, doctor, can I get it? Um, what are the side effects? I'm nervous about getting it. Help me understand how it works and all of that. So, um, you know, again, a big spike in volume from the numbers, certainly back in May, April, where it was like all hands on deck working. And yeah. now the numbers are, are again, manageable, but um, the cases that are coming in are really interesting. Yeah. So where do you think that tele telehealth like 
homeostasis will end up, uh, you know, the numbers I've seen is, you know, it got up to about 60% of visits were, were telehealth during the peak of the pandemic, if you will, and everything being closed. And then we've seen it fall down, you know, in the 20% for many organizations. My predictions is like 15% of telehealth visits that might be reasonable at least. And then, and then it will probably inch up from there as we get more comfortable. What do you think? Where, where do you think uh, that homeostasis of, you know, in-person versus telehealth is going to be? It definitely is going to be a hybrid model. And I think that any doctor's office that did not utilize telehealth services in any way during this pandemic, um, they're going to sort of be behind the eight ball because patients want it now. You know, they, mm-hmm. they know about it, even if they haven't used it themselves, they know it's an option. They've heard about it. They have friends who have used it. They hear about it on TV, whatever it may be. So they're going to want that from their primary care physician or you know, whatever doctor they see, I have a lot of friends who are specialists and they were still using it, you know, GI Mm -hmm. doctors and um, even gynecologists who can't necessarily do exams, but can refill medications and counsel about hormonal therapies, et cetera. So I I think that it's going to have to be a hybrid for your practice to to succeed. And I think not just the private practice, but health systems, um, hospitals, they're going to want to be able to offer this as well. And I think I read an article on it, and I'm sorry, I can't quote exactly where it was, but just yesterday that about 30% of visits, you know, right now are telehealth visits. And and I, I think that that's a, you know, 25, to 30% is where I would guess it would end up being. And, you know, when you think about, let's, let's just take a chronic care patient. So someone who has high blood pressure or diabetes, for example, um, when it comes to something that's chronic, the more touch points with a medical professional, the better for the patient. You know, they just want reassurance. They just want to be reminded you're doing the right thing. And they also want that reassurance from maybe blood work that everything looks good. So different touch points in different ways. You definitely need the in-person visit. And I think that's one thing I can say for Amwell for the last almost eight years is that never, ever have we thought, or do we train our doctors and onboard them to understand, never thought that we would take the place of a primary care physician or in-person care. It's really about augmenting the care that you can get at that time. And we, we still feel that way hundred percent. So telemedicine really can augment the care now during the pandemic, especially for people who have providers. So they'll have an in-person visit, let's say as maybe a yearly check-in where they'll monitor everything, do the full exam, then maybe in three months, touch base with a telemedicine visit, you know, Hey, how are things going? Are you staying well? How have your blood sugars been? How's your blood pressure? Most people are monitoring their own blood pressure. Um, Looks like you don't need a refill on your medications yet. Is that true? Why don't I see you three months in the office? So then they come back for a quicker visit in the office where they can get refills of their meds perhaps, or they can get a blood work if it needed to be checked again. And then, hey, I'll see you in three months online again. And and then you get back to that yearly visit. So I think that it goes hand in hand with those in-person visits for many chronic conditions. And we'll see that moving forward. Yeah. I think it's great. I mean, you gave the rural example, the chronic example, I think makes a lot of sense where they maybe can't even travel to it. Uh, the other one that hit me was, you know, I, I realized when telehealth had potential when one time I, I got sick, I was flying to Hawaii, I had to give a talk the next day. And I went to one of the doctors I worked with, uh, I worked in this clinic, and I went to the doctor I said, Hey, I'm flying out tomorrow, I got to speak. What can you do? And he, and he heard my cough and he heard my raspy voice and all that. Right. And he's like, wrote a script and to me, take this, John, you'll be fine. And I was like, don't we need to go next door in the exam room and like, you know, do the whole thing. And he's like, John, 
take it. You're going to be fine. See you later. And so I didn't realize how much of it was theater, right? <laughs> like, you know, listening to my heart, et cetera. But it's like, he'd already diagnosed me based on my cough, based on the symptoms I told him about and, and you know, the, my voice, et cetera. And I was like, oh, so yeah, telehealth could work for a lot of things <laughs> that I don't realize. <laughs> exactly. And I think the general public doesn't realize that either. And that is one message that I always love to get out there is, you know, um, people need to understand that when a doctor talks to you, the history taking really makes about 80% of the diagnosis. The other 20% of the visit is making sure it's not something else, you know? And, mm -hmm. and so I, um, I always tell patients, let's say I saw you for that cough. And I was a little worried that it was more than just a cough from drainage or from a bronchitis based on your history and a few maneuvers. We can do some testing maneuvers sure. online. But um, what I say, and I always train doctors to say something like this, is that if I saw you in my brick and mortar, John, I would likely get a chest x-ray or I would likely really listen to your lungs. And if I didn't like the way they sounded, I'd get the chest x-ray. So you need to be seen in person because I can't confidently diagnose this. But what I can also offer value for, even if I, I'm not going to be able to treat them online, I can reassure them and say, you know what? You don't need to go to the emergency room today. It can wait till tomorrow. You can get in with your primary, right. um, that type of thing. So it, it is a um, great way to do a face-to-face -face triage. It's like a phone visit, but so much better. And in many, to your example, in many, um, in many times, we can treat to completion. You know, 70 to 80% yeah. of the time, we can take care of a visit in front of us to completion. Yeah. Well, and to your point, now we've all had that experience. So the, the population is going to be so much more educated on, oh, I, maybe I should try telehealth rather than just defaulting to I'm going into the clinic because that's what I need. So I, I think it will be great. Absolutely. And since you just said it that way, I will point out um, the obvious in that with COVID, I think we are going to see even eventually, let's hope when, you know, the mask mandate, social distancing, you know, that's come off a little bit. Um, I think we'll still have a group of the population that is fearful of going into the doctor's office. Yeah. So the more they can do this way and have their doctor face to face with compassion, say, listen, this is good for today, but in six months, I need to see you in my office. And yeah. it'll be that much more accepting for the patient to then, you know, show up in the office for a visit like it used to be. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, we put created a list of telehealth vendors. I mean, there's hundreds of telehealth vendors out there. What do you think makes Amwell really so special? Because there's so many out there. What, what's the special sauce of Amwell in your mind? Mm-hmm. Um, it would have to be the group, the network of physicians and the way we work together and really the culture that we've created, in my opinion. And I, I like to think I'm really a intimate part of that because when people are onboarded often, um, not all the time, but often if doctors have questions, they'll be routed to me or one of my other medical directors and we'll talk to them. And through that conversation can really give them an idea of what the culture is like, what we're looking for, the high level of standard of care that we look to, you know, we practice evidence-based medicine. We, we review the quality of the visits. And if something is, if there is, um, let's say a patient complaint or a client complaint, let's say, you know, a hospital or health system has an issue with something, that, some feedback that they got, you know, we are on that right away. We meet with our providers in a thoughtful, non-punitive way and really talk about, hey, okay, what can we do differently? And try to, um, to figure out how to make the provider as successful as they can be. 
um, you know, to provide care that way. So I really love the camaraderie for lack of a better word. And I've had my own friends criticize, well, how can you have camaraderie when you're not working in the same <laughs> office space as someone? And I think that's something we have worked since day one in trying to, um, to imitate what it feels like to be in the brick and mortar. Yes, I'm mm -hmm. not gonna be in the same room with you, John, but I know how to reach you. And we have chat ways that we can talk to people. We have an internal water cooler of sorts where doctors can post interesting discussions. We can post the latest on COVID and the vaccine. We can um, ask for help from our peers. So we've really tried to think of every way that we can make it mimic the brick and mortar experience other than you're not going to you know, be uh, side by side. I even will send periodic, thank goodness for Prime, right? I will send Starburst to my friends who I know <laughs> love Starburst and things like that. So again, awesome. it, I think that we, it really is about the culture and the way that the other leaders within the Amwell Medical Group and, and Amwell itself have really nurtured um, the other members of the team, so to speak. You know, and, and yeah. I, I don't know, I, I really like that. And I think that we're all uh, all on the same page with that. Yeah, as someone who builds a lot of online communities, I know, I, I understand fully what you're saying, like how connected you are with the people even if you've just known them virtually. So that, that's great. And, and one day when you meet in person, it will be that much sweeter, I think. But uh, that's interesting. Um, so, you know, I have a, a theory around uh, telehealth that uh, models the EHR, right? So when the EHR was implemented, they implemented the medical record, but then eventually people wanted an enterprise EHR that did the medical record, it did the lab, it did the pharmacy, it did the ED, et cetera, et cetera, right? They wanted an enterprise, you know, EHR solution. Mm -hmm. And I kind of feel like it feels like telehealth going this way. And I'd love to hear, do you think it's going that way for a health system? And if so, what do you think a hospital or health system will need in an enterprise telehealth solution? Does it, I mean, I'll just give you a few examples, live video visits, specialty specific visits, telequarantine. Are those the types of things or how do you guys think about enterprise telehealth from a health system perspective? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's going to happen. And I think that people, it, it's interesting. I went to the American Telemedicine Association meeting a year or so ago. And when I walked in the room where all the vendors were and I saw how all the technology and the visions and the innovations was like at this high level, I'm the most non-tech person there is, so <laughs> high. And I felt like even the, the, the doctors and the ability to do this wasn't quite there yet. You know, but I think we're getting close. So. I guess I would say that um, the model, you know, it, it's going to happen. Um, it has to be scalable, you know, so on both sides, the hospital side or the health system side and the provider side, you need to have the vision, you need to have the thinkers who are innovating this sort of thing. And it needs to be in flux, right? Very dynamic, always, always thinking, how can we reach out really to the ultimate goal is to our patients to make a better healthcare experience for them, get all the data we need take care of them, follow up with them and, you know, be able to go to bed at night and, and feel like we did our job. So it has to be scalable. I also think it has to be secure. I guess these are sort of the three S's, scalable, secure, definitely HIPAA compliant. And I know that scares a lot of people, patients and, and health systems and hospitals alike, rightly so. But thankfully, I think we've got a lot of brains who are working on that. Um, not me necessarily, but, um, you know, it has to be, it has to be secure sure. and, and, and HIPAA compliant. And the doctors who are practicing telemedicine have to also make sure they are HIPAA compliant and working in a secure space it goes both yep. ways. And then the third S would be, um, 
you know, ease of use, simple. You know, it's gotta be a simple model. Doctors in particular don't wanna be bothered with too many bells and whistles. They wanna be able to carry over information from one visit to the next visit so they don't have to duplicate a lot of things. They want it to be efficient um, and not get bogged down with the documentation so they can really do what it is they wanna do, which is take care of that patient and, and um, you know, move on to the next. Yeah. So how about, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you guys offered, you know, direct to consumer telehealth visits, but you also provide the services to health systems to be able to do the telemedicine. Do you ever, you know, bump into this kind of competitive nature or how do you respond to, you know, that Amwell is kind of a competitor to your customers since you offer direct to consumer and then also the health systems, you know, obviously offer it as well. How do you approach that or what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, Maybe it's just because I feel like I'm in the trenches myself as a physician seeing patients. And when I'm consulted to give my input, it usually is from a clinical perspective. So I feel that I don't feel the competition that I know is there, of course. And I think, again, it comes down to our culture and how when we hire physicians, everyone is sort of on the same page to do the, the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the the patient is really at the 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 point of why we're here and what we're doing is to take care of that patient. And if we can't do it, guide them into their, whether it's their primary care or get them hooked up with a specialist, giving them a referral, um, but getting plugged into in-person care because they need certain things. And, and I'd like to think that collectively the telehealth industry, whether we're competitors or not, we're all working you know, for that same goal. And I think when it comes to Amwell, that, that again, culture uh, or that um, description is how they're working with their health systems and their hospitals to really underscore the the importance of that. Yeah. It's going to be interesting how to see how it all plays out. Uh, you know, it's like I tell a lot of people that maybe I compete with, I'm like, oh, the pie is big enough. You know, <laughs> there's enough, there's enough yeah. telehealth that needs to be done, right? <laughs> right, sure. I guess if I said it, yeah, you're right. I, that is true. There are, there are plenty of people out there who need medical care and we can all have a role in that. It's just a matter of deciding which, you know, which one is for you and, and then as a physician who you want to be aligned with. Really? Yeah. Well, and I think it makes sense from a health system perspective to have backup when your own in-house staff can't do it, right? I think that might be a feature of an enterprise telehealth system as well that's needed because they can't scale up or, you know, if they have a spike, they need the backup. So I think that makes sense as well. That's a great point, you know, I, and I should have thought to say that. You're right. So during the uh, pandemic, I believe that we did do a lot of wraparound coverage for people who, let's say they weren't seeing their patients in person, so they used our technology to see their patients, but they couldn't do it 24-7. And we are a 24-7 company, so we could see them after hours or on weekends when their staff may or may not have been working. But we worked side by side with them, which was really interesting. In fact, one of my colleagues from medical school reached out to me. At, he lives <laughs> in Tennessee, and I live you know, in Maryland. And he, he uh, sent me an email, said, Mia, we're actually working side by side today. <laughs> that you're on. And I was like, whoa, there's a blast from the past. (laughs) So um, I I forget about that capability because I'm in such a large network of doctors, but you're absolutely right. People can use the ML technology, physicians can, to see their own patients. And then we can help provide that wraparound coverage um, on weekends and nights. 
Yep. Definitely. So what do you see happening with telehealth reimbursement? In my mind, that's key to the success of telehealth. I mean, there will always be some people who can just buy it on their own, but mm-hmm. to really have mass adoption, I think the reimbursement stuff is going to be key and watching that will determine, you know, are we at 30 or 15% as we kind of talked before? So what do you see happening with telehealth reimbursement? It's, you know, I I should follow that closer than I do, honestly, but I I do think that reimbursements overall are getting better. And with this current um, first quarter, I, I believe from my CMO that there have been some new strides or promises to move ahead with getting better reimbursements. Um, Mm -hmm. What I love to see from my vantage point when I'm seeing patients is we'll have new clients that we're working with um, and I will, they will volunteer usually when I'm seeing them that, yeah, this is a covered benefit for me. So I am seeing that more insurers are offering telemedicine services as a covered Mm -hmm. benefit for their employees, employer groups, you know, whether it is uh, fully covered um, or a partial coverage, you know, so the patient is just putting in a copay before they connect with the doctor. Sure. But that's really nice to see. And I, I can speak that, you know, I am seeing growth in that pretty frequently that we're getting new clients coming in with that setup. So that's really reassuring for me. Yeah. Uh, I think it'll be fun to watch. Uh, well, if it goes in the right direction, because I think we all, it's so, it's so weird because if you'd asked me a year ago before COVID, I would have said, and I've said this, I think in a number of places wrote it, I was like, we all know telehealth's the right thing to do, right? No, but know. we couldn't ever get there. So, I mean, it took COVID to get there. Um, it did. And, and I will say, you know, from the perspective of the physicians, look at the way we're trained. And, and I think it's changing now. Um, not, and I think it was pre-COVID, it was starting to change, but you know, um, the, the, sorry, the students, you know, they were trained, okay, you're gonna take, especially in family medicine, right? You're gonna take care of the whole patient and you're gonna see them and you're gonna be their contact and you're gonna develop a relationship. And when they need a specialist, you're gonna refer them. You really didn't talk about, well, what do you do when that person's on vacation or when you're on vacation, they need a refill and it's Friday at five o'clock. Or, you know, in the middle of the night, you know, and they tried to call you and no one's, I'm, I'm amazed at how many people will say to me, yeah, my doctor doesn't have an on-call line anymore. When I was training, I was always getting those on-call, you know, yeah. calls at like 3 a.m. <laughs> but a lot of doctors don't have um, overnight or weekend coverage anymore on the yeah. phone. And they just tell their patients, if there's a problem, go to the urgent care. So, you know, all of those patients, they were there before. And I think it took this pandemic to make us realize, wow, the value of telemedicine, it's always there. And, um, you know, we can use it with our doctors, you know, again, working together, that hybrid model, I think is really going to become more of a way of the future and probably something that practices will start to advertise. Yeah. Well, I think that's where it really will hit the ground is when, when I choose to go to one because they have that and they advertised it. Right. So I think that's a interesting. And then the other side is, you know, like my patient advocate friend uh, who's, you know, recovered from cancer and has is caregiver to a child. She said it, frankly, she's like, I'm not going back. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, I'm not going to allow that to happen. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I, I see them daily patients who are like, you know, I'm afraid of going into my doctor's office right now. Yeah. 
And then my next, even though I don't ask this, I'm thinking in my head, are they going to be afraid forever now? So again, I think it really, the onus is on the physician to take a, take the time to use the face-to-face video to also educate their patient. Like, listen, Hey, we can do this now, but I do need to get you in there for certain things and it's going to be okay. And, and that sort of thing. And it's safe. We have the precautions now to be able to do that safely if it's needed. So, absolutely. so what do you think people don't understand about telehealth that they should? And I'm, I think this could be either on the patient side or even on the, you know, clinician side. What, what don't they understand? Because you have such a depth of experience. What, what do you think, uh, you know, yeah. they don't know? On the clinician side, and I, I was actually going to get to this point earlier. And then again, when I start talking, right, I go on tangent. <laughs> I think for the clinician, and, and I, I hate to blame it on an and uh, generation type of thing, but I suspect, I've never done a study. I suspect the older generations, and I'm including myself in that, are reluctant to change something that they have been doing for forever, but for no good reason. Like I'm doing it because this is the way I was trained, as opposed to start thinking about how medicine is changing and Mm -hmm. that it's not changing for the worse. This is actually for the better. We're going to be able to meet the needs of our patients in different ways. Sure, it's not for everyone, but to understand and not be threatened as a finish, this is by the clinician, now the physician, not to be threatened by the telemedicine as a way of reaching out to patients. I think, think of how you can use that in your practice, because I could make an argument that every specialty could use telemedicine in some way, shape or form, even a surgeon, you know, and my husband's an anesthesiologist. And I think even he could use it, you know, in some ways. PT is a good one too, right? (laughs) Challenging, but it can work. (laughs) It can work, right. There, There are things you can do. And then from the patient's perspective, and I think we touched on this earlier, is to understand that there is much more to the patient interaction with the physician than simply laying hands on them. To your point about your doctor just listening to your story, looking how you are breathing, maybe hearing you <clears throat> clear your throat and speak in complete sentences and looking at the color on your skin. It really is observational. It is history taking. And if there is, you know, with that 80%, if you can't make a pretty clear diagnosis, then you're going to need those in-person services. So for patients to understand, there's just so much more that you get out of the visit than simply a eh, go, go to in-person care or a prescription, you know, right. it really is a thoughtful diagnosis. Yeah, definitely. And I think to your point about the doctors and clinicians, they just never had to, right? I mean, they, they were making a good living and we were held captive. And I don't think it was done maliciously. Like you said, it was just the way they've always done it and they could and they were successful and we would come in and, you know, I, I say that and I, I want to be careful because I think of some of the marginalized people who couldn't see a doctor because they couldn't go in and things like that. But uh, you know, yeah. it's great that we're moving this direction. I think so too. And I will tell you, you know, when, when doctors ask, um, Hey, when are the, like the busiest times to work and things like that, you know, cause they want to get in and see patients They're They're hungry to learn about this after hours or, you know, so even after doctor's hours, after that seven to five or whatever, we tend to be really busy, you know, until bedtime. And then even our overnight shifts are busy because there are a lot of shift workers and things yep. like that. People who start earlier, they have off schedules and then weekends, you know, some of our busiest times are Saturdays and Sundays afternoons. So Again, why did medicine have to be limited to that seven to five, seven a.m. to five p.m. unless you were in the hospital? You yeah. know, and, and um, to your point, we are. It wasn't malicious, but we're finally realizing, yeah, we can do this twenty four seven. Hey, the news does it twenty four seven. 
Guess how many 24-7 urgent cares there are in Las Vegas. I mean, of all places, a 24-7 city, there's one. Are you kidding? Yeah, it's like shocking, but I guess they just said, we don't care, go to the ED, right? And it's like, if Vegas has this problem, every other state has it even worse, right? That's a a perfect example right there. And for everyone to realize the cost of an emergency department visit is so much greater than an urgent care, than a telemedicine visit. So, you know, let's try to be cost effective and obviously go when you need it. But um, for most things, you don't need the ED. Yep. Absolutely. And the only reason I knew that is because I went at 1 a.m., but <laughs> I live in Vegas. So, you know, that was Uh-oh. what happened, but <laughs> it all worked Everything out. was okay. <laughs> it's good. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Mia. I appreciate you sharing these insights and thanks everyone for watching. If you want to find more great health IT content like this, be sure to check it out at healthcareittoday.com. Thanks, Dr. Mia. Thanks, John. Great to be here.